Well, good evening. Take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 8. It's where we are tonight in our ongoing study of the Word of God, Romans chapter 8. It's a tremendous uh, chapter that describes to us uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and defines for us what life under the direction of his ministry looks like. Uh, it's a remarkable chapter that's really loaded with deep uh, theological truths to encourage our heart, to draw us upward to, uh, in our worship of God in Christ and to leave a real deep impression on our hearts uh, concerning the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life. Uh, so deep, I think, uh, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I do really think on some level it's difficult for us to understand as men, redeemed men, uh, how uh, wonderful uh, the truth that is contained in this chapter really is. As we've seen so far in our study, beginning at the top of the chapter, we see that we always have a tremendous reason to rejoice, uh, always. Uh, we were sitting on death row, if uh, you will, with uh, condemned to the eternal punishment of hell, declared by the holy God of uh, the universe as guilty before him, just simply waiting the day of our, uh, our execution. Uh, but God in his kindness, because of his tremendous love and mercy towards us, because of the substitutionary work of his Son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, by that work we've been pardoned. Uh, our sin has been covered over by another. Our sin has been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ as he was executed uh, for us. Uh, the chapter, of course, opens with the most wonderful words, Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and as we've seen, the reality of this, because of uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, applying the work of Christ in, into our lives, we've been set free from sin and death. We've been and able to fulfill the law of God, we've had our natures changed. Again, all wonderful truths that we've already looked at. And as we move on further in the chapter, we'll see that it's the work of the Holy Spirit who empowers us for victory over our flesh. It's the Holy Spirit who comes and affirms our adoption. It's the uh, person of the Holy Spirit who guarantees our glory. He intercedes for us. And at the end of the chapter, there's a burst of praise that starts in about verse 26, runs through verse 39 uh, for the great realities of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Now, honestly, there's so much in the chapter, I really struggle with uh, exactly how to proceed uh, because I think there's a lot of truth, beneficial truth, that uh, would be an encouragement for us. And so instead of just kind of rushing along into the next verses, which would take us to verses uh, 12 and 13, where the Holy Spirit empowers us for victory over the flesh, I decided that we need to go back a little bit and just consider a couple things in the latter portion of the text that we went through uh, last week that we just kind of rushed our way through. So again, with your Bibles open to, to Romans 8, let me just read the text, and, and then we're going to consider a few additional things from this portion of Scripture that we uh, worked our way through in part, at least, uh, at least in part last time. Romans 8 and 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But, verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Uh, again, these verses in a whole uh, speak of our past, present, and future. Uh, in the past, before salvation, we were like everyone else. We were in the flesh with our minds set on the things of the flesh. We were hostile towards God. We were not subject uh, to the law of God in any fashion. Therefore, we were unable to please God. But because of our great no condemnation status, verse 9 says, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. 
because of God's kindness through Christ, we've been taken into an entirely different realm. Uh, we used to live under the authority and the influence of the uh, power uh, uh, of our unredeemed sinful flesh. But now, as I told you last time, the first uh, truth here in this portion of Scripture, we are in an entirely new position. We are in an entirely new position than we once were when we were apart from Christ. Now, presently, we are no longer controlled by our <clears throat> former uh, sinful nature, but now by the Spirit, because the text says we are in the Spirit. As believers, we're under the power and the authority and the influence uh, of the Holy Spirit. We're under His control, therefore, and in an entirely new position. The second thing that this portion of Scripture says for us who are in this no-condemnation status, we have a new possession, a new possession. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit Himself. Uh, not are we uh, only in the Spirit, but the Spirit is in us. There's a mutual indwelling. We're living in the realm of the Spirit, and the Spirit is living in, uh, in us. Verse 9 continues, However, if you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit, uh, uh, if indeed or, or sense the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now Paul's already established that fact that the Christian is no longer in the flesh, but he is in the Spirit. And again, if the if Christian is in the Spirit, then the Spirit is in the, in the Christian. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since or because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that reality is going to be proved in our lives by a change, a transformation, a changed life. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that word dwells, I told you, means to take up residence, uh, to be in one's, <coughs> excuse me, to be in one's own home. Again, it means at the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up immediate uh, residence within us. He resides within us. Uh, again, that's something that happens at the moment of salvation. And, and again, it's put there as a statement of fact. That, that's a definition of who a Christian really is. A Christian is in the Spirit in whom the Spirit of God dwells. On the contrary, Paul goes on in verse 9, he says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. <clears throat> at the moment of your conversion, uh, uh, you were changed, you were transformed, and dwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence within you. And if that reality is not evidenced by a transformed life, it's because the Holy Spirit, uh, because if that reality is not evidenced by a transformed life, because that's what the Holy Spirit does, right? He gives us a new nature, breaks the power of sin, breaks the punishment of sin in our life. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So what does that say? It says, look, if your life is no different than before you quote-unquote accepted Jesus, if your life looks no different than before you accepted Jesus, then you're not under the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. Because every genuine believer who is in the Spirit, the Spirit is in them, therefore they're no longer in the flesh. Again, no longer under the dominating control and influence of the flesh, but now under the control and influence power uh, of the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That's a change, a radical change. Again, this, the Christian is indwelt by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come and made his residence, his home uh, within us. And, and as I told you before, that's just an, an utterly amazing truth that I really think we should contemplate more. We should really think more on. E even to the church at Corinth, uh, the, the sinful church at Corinth, all kinds of problems, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own, that you've been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's a reality to everybody who's a true, genuine believer. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And I think I said something along the lines of last time, if we just contemplated that reality, then we'd probably be more careful about how we live our lives, right? Corinthians, don't, don't you realize 
Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? How, how can you do that thing if you're bringing God with you into that kind of a sin? How can you think those kind of thoughts if the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you? Right? The Holy Spirit, you're the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. You're not your own. Right? Realize that when you come from slavery to sin, you go into slavery to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now you belong to him. And that's the third truth about being a Christian here in this portion of Scripture. Paul, the, Paul tells us that the Christian belongs to Christ. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Again, that's a, a, another utterly amazing reality. We belong to Christ. We've been bought with a price, and the Father has given us as a gift uh, to the Son. And Christ, the Son, has promised to not cast any of us out, to never lose anyone who's been given to him by the Father, but to raise them up on the last day. And Christ has promised those who belong to him eternal life, that they will never perish, that no one will be able to snatch them or snatch us out of his hand. Therefore, there's nothing or no one that can ever separate us from the love of Christ. It's just an utterly amazing uh, series of truths piled up on top of each other to allow us to do what? Go to sleep. Why in the world do you need to stay up at night worrying about everything if God's already got everything under control? Right? No sense both of us being awake. Right? I mean, if God's promised to never have anything, never uh, allow no one or anything to separate us from his great love to the person of Jesus Christ, go to bed at night. Don't worry about your job. Don't worry about your neighbor's job. Don't worry about your neighbor. Don't worry about this thing. Just go to bed at night and trust God. Praise him for the fact that he is in control of all these things. And he has loved you with an eternal love and time. That he's promised to carry you into the eternal uh, future. So again, how did all this happen? How, how did we become the recipients of God's tremendous kindness? Well, it, it's a very short and simple answer. It's sovereign grace. It's just sovereign grace. By the grace and the love and the mercy of God himself, he chose to act independently from our input in our lives to love us. He chose to love us, and he chose to quicken us from the dead, to work a regeneration in us from our position of spiritual deadness. Again, Romans 8 and 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God sent Christ, his Son, into the world out of his tremendous love as an offering for sin. And then God sent the person of the Holy Spirit after uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, condemned sin in the flesh. He sent the Holy Spirit to bring us life. John 6 and 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. God makes us alive spiritually by planting new life in us, his life in us. Our God is the God who gives life to the dead. Our God is the, the God who calls into being that which does not exist. Again, he is the one. God is the one who quickens the dead. Uh, Ephesians 2.1 in the authorized version says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Why? Because he's the God who's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us. Right? The NAS says, even when we are dead, he made us alive together with Christ. Tremendous truth. God plants new life within us. Again, his life. And now, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living within us, we are alive now to the things of God. And again, we are under the governing authority of that which is holy, that being the person of God. We are now in a different position, no longer under the total domination of sin, the dominance of sin as we once were which leads us to verse 10, which is our present position. 
right? So we have a, a new uh, uh, a position, we, we have a new possession, and we have a new power, verse 10. Again, verse 10 says, if or since or, or because Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Right? The body, uh, the body is dead in sin. I tell you that time that just speaks about the reality of the fact that although we're saved, forgiven, transformed, given a new nature, we now love God, we love his word, we hate our sin, we want to please the Lord, now we have the power to please him. Uh, the reality is we're still incarcerated in human flesh. Uh, our physical makeup, the, this body, the uh, flesh and bone, the, the body is dead because of sin. There's the principle of death, the principle of decay. Uh, the seed of death is in our physical makeup. And the Bible tells us that one day these bodies are going to be eliminated. Sin's going to be utterly destroyed from this universe. Uh, the, these bodies are going to cease to exist. And again, we see that reality. I'm going to have to argue that point too hard, right? Every day when you look in the mirror, right? Everybody around you sees that reality. They go, oh my gosh, what happened to him? Until they look in the mirror and he says, what happened to me? Right? That principle of death is there every day bringing us downward. Since or because Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin... Yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So again, although our bodies are decaying physically, we are alive spiritually. And again, I think the word there, uh, yet in the spirit, I think he's talking about not the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the human spirit. Uh, again, I think he's setting up a contrast. Paul's setting up a contrast. Since Christ is in you, on the one hand, and though the body is dead because of sin, yet on the other hand, the spirit is alive. Right? The outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. It's what he's saying. And again, though your body is good as dead, your spirit is alive. Why? Because now it has the, 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 the seed of life, the, the seed of the life of God. The Christian, again, is one who's with Christ, in Christ, united with the person uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, again, although your body is decaying and dying in the process of dying, your spirit is alive. Your spirit is regenerate. Right? The inward you is regenerate. That's what verse 10 is all about. Verse 10 is about regeneration. So according to verse 9, the presence of the Holy Spirit proves our salvation is genuine. According to verse 10, the Holy Spirit presence now guarantees our spiritual regeneration. And verse 11 is going to tell us that the Holy Spirit's presence is going to guarantee our physical uh, resurrection. Again, speaking of our future. So tonight, I want to kind of hone in on verse 10. And, and spend a little bit of time talking about the doctrine of regeneration, because that's what's really going on in verse 10. And I think the doctrine of regeneration is a doctrine that's often um, neglected. But it's a doctrine that's absolutely essential and absolutely pivotal uh, for us to understand because it's precisely here at, at this point, I think, that many people falter and fail to understand fully the, the glory of their salvation. Because if we just stop at the idea of forgiveness of sin only and fail to realize the significance of the truth of the doctrine of regeneration, we can't understand to the full extent that we should exactly what happened to us at conversion, right? What, what exactly happened to us so that we can actually believe uh, the gospel? <clears throat> and if we don't understand that, then we certainly can't fully understand or appreciate the glorious things that God has done for us in Christ. So I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about this issue. Now, you put a little mark there. We're going to do a little bit of turning around. We're going to eventually come back to this portion of Scripture. But there, there's a wonderful picture of, um, uh, of uh, spiritual renewal, spiritual regeneration that's found in the Old Testament uh, that although it speaks directly to the future time of Israel and a nas national, uh, national restoration, uh, nevertheless, uh, it promises, uh, the promises that it makes are applicable to the individual. 
right? And I really think it's an accurate uh, picture of individual conversion. Found back in uh, Ecclesiastes, thir- or in, uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36, if you wanted to turn there. Uh, Ezekiel 36. Same kind of truths are in uh, Jeremiah 31. I thought about going there too, but we just can't do that for time's sake. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. And just listen to the words here. It's uh, God through the prophet Ezekiel, right? The Lord is promising that he's going to come and he's going to give spiritual life to his people. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. So God makes the, pro- uh, the promise that he's going to wash away all sins. Again, not only the sins of the individual Jew and Gentile, but one day he's promised this to, uh, to the entire nation of Israel. And he's going to remove sin. He's going to remove evil inclinations from man. He's going to replace those evil inclinations with a new nature, a new heart. And heart here kind of stands for the nature of man. A new heart refers to a new birth, a regeneration, again, by the work of the Holy Spirit. The word spirit here is the governing power of the mind that that directs the thoughts and the actions of the person. A stony heart is a self-willed and a stubborn heart. A heart of flesh is a pliable and responsive heart. God says, I'm going to forgive and wash away your sins. Verse 25 again. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to give you a new nature that's governed by me. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I mean, this is the, the promise of conversion. That's spiritual regeneration. That's new life. It does include forgiveness of sin, but this regeneration, again, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it's the ability to obey positively the commands of God. And it's all the work of God. Note again, he's not asking anybody to do anything. He's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Right? Five times. This is what God is doing. Over in Ezekiel 11, verse 19, he says, I shall give them one heart and shall put a new spirit within them. And I shall take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is what the theologians would call the sovereign monergistic work of God. This is not a synergistic. It's not you and God working together. This is monergistic. One work, one, one effort. God's effort. This is what God's going to do. This is what God does in the heart of the sinner. Again, unaided by human effort of any kind. Now, in the New Testament, there are a number of terms used with regard to this event that the Holy Spirit produces uh, in us. And, and I'll just go through a, a, a few of them. Uh, you don't have to turn yet, you will, but just listen to, to a few of these words. Uh, the first word that's used in the New Testament that talks about the doctrine of regeneration is actually the word regeneration. It, it's only used twice in the New Testament. And only once is it used of uh, personal application. It's in Titus 3, 5. It says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Right? The, the word regeneration 
palangesia. It means, palan means again, Genesis, gesia, birth, again birth, right? How is, that, how is a man saved? By, by his own effort? Is a man saved by accepting Jesus? Is a man saved because he walked an aisle or signed a pledge card? Or no? A man is saved by not works, but by mercy. Right? He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of God. Right? By a spiritual, divine, spiritual awakening, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, God gives to those who are saved new hearts, new dispositions, <clears throat> excuse me, a new spirit. So the first group of words is regeneration. There's a second group of words uh, that have to do with being born again or to give birth, being born. Uh, when Christ speaks of those whom God has given the power to become his children, he says in John 1, 13, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right? So those who belong to God, those who are God's children, are born spiritually, not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but those who are born spiritually are born by the will of God himself. Now, we talked about that when we went through the section in John, but the very act of birth, physical birth, is a passive act, right? How many of you chose to be born? Not your issue. You just showed up when you were supposed to show up, right? You didn't do anything. Didn't pick your parents, didn't pick the day, didn't pick the time. This is what God does. It's a passive act. Right? None of us chose to be born physically. Likewise, the Bible says spiritually, none of us chooses to be born again spiritually because it's a sovereign act of a merciful God. Regeneration is monergistic. Regeneration is a sovereign act of a merciful God. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's a God thing. So again, regeneration is, is an entirely sovereign work of God. Uh, John 3 and 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I told you we went through that section. Born again literally means being born from above. Unless you're born from above, Nicodemus, right? You're not seeing the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, obviously a very educated man, a religious scholar. Uh, Nicodemus says to him, John chapter 3, verse 4, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter into a second time to his mother's womb to be born, can he? Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, uh, I say to you, unless one is born of water, which is just a picture, it's not literal water, it's a picture of what we just read out of the book of Ezekiel of a cleansing, a spiritual cleansing. Unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not be amazed that I say you must be born again. Right? You have to be born again. You have to be born above. You have to have a second birth if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. So again, although Nicodemus is a very religious individual, he's a spiritually dead individual. At this time, he's in desperate need of regeneration. He's in desperate need of spiritual transformation. Verse 8 of that chapter, John 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes or where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Just like no man has power over the wind... Oh, you can see the physical effects, but you certainly don't have the power to do anything with the wind. You see the trees go back and forth and leaves fall and the dust blow, etc. So is the Holy Spirit. You can't control the wind any more than you can control the Holy Spirit. Wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. Don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Out of your hands, my friends. It's a God thing. Now, the proof that God has done an act in your life, the proof is evident there just like the wind's 
uh, reality is there when you see dust being picked up or the winds, uh, wind blow the trees. And when the Holy Spirit is evident there, the Holy Spirit does a work in a man's life. And there's an unmistakable evidence of that reality uh, from who we once were to who we are now in Christ. And that evidence is uh, seen everywhere, and it's evidence of life. Just listen to a, a few of these, uh, again, ideas of birth or being brought forth or born again. James 1 and 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be uh, a kind of first fruit among his creatures. The NIV says, uh, by the exercise of his will, he chose to give us birth through his will. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. John, 1 John, he uses a different phrase, but it's pretty close, describes the sovereign work of God. He says, born of God. Uh, 1 John 2 and 29, if you, uh, now, uh, if you know that he is righteous, uh, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him or born of God. 1 John 3 and 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 1 John 4 and 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 1 John 5, 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Right? So all these kind of words, again, it's the work of God, born of God, born of him, uh, 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 words of new birth. There's another group of uh, words in the New Testament that have to do with creation or creating or a new creation. I use it all the time, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? A new creature. Old things pass away, behold, new things have come. Galatians 6 and 15. For neither is there circumcision, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what every man needs, right? He needs a new creation. Ephesians 2 and 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 4, 24. Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There's another group of words that are very much related to the idea of being born. Uh, it's suzo uh, pueo uh, is the is the group uh, of words, but it basically means quickened or made alive. Uh, again, the, the King James Ephesians two and uh, two and one. You hath he quickened, right? Who are dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you're saved. Again, in the NAS, it says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Even when you're dead in your transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. Uh, by grace you've been saved. Uh, Colossians 2.13 in the authorized, it says, you being dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of flesh, he hath quickened together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. So, uh, again, the NAS says you are dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, and he made you alive quickened, to be made alive together with him, forgiven all of our transgressions. Right? So, so there are many texts in the New Testament that describe the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the work of God in regeneration. Again, regeneration means that God comes and God plants life, his life, the seed of life in us who were formerly dead, who were in the flesh, and now the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, and he implants new life, his life into us, into our soul. That's regeneration. It's the sovereign, monergistic work of God. And regeneration must occur at the very beginning. Right? Because without it, because of the result of the fall, we are all spiritually dead. 
We, we are unable, spiritually dead, we're unable to respond to spiritual truth. So, therefore, regeneration comes at the beginning of our salvation, and not only comes at the beginning, it's uh, essential, because, again, uh, Christ told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. It's not just a nice thing, it's an essential thing. It has to happen, God has to work. So then the question would be this, well, how does this all happen? How, how does it come to us? We know it's the sovereign work of God, but exactly how are we aware of the fact that this has happened to us? How does the Holy Spirit enable us to believe, uh, to become believers? How does he allow us to come under uh, the control of uh, life spiritually, his life, so that we now realize the fact that eternal life is in us, that something has changed in us? Well, how does it happen? It's all in response to what is known theologically as the call of God, the call of God, the calling of God. The Bible says that the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel has to be proclaimed to everybody, right? To all men universally, without exception. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Anybody wants to come, come on in. Right? All come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. John seven thirty seven. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Acts seventeen thirty. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Romans 10 and 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? So all men are to, all, all men are to be told the same truth. All men are to be told of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of mankind and, and the fact that sin has placed them in separation uh, between him, them, them, and God, that there's a hostility there, an enmity. And because of that break in the relationship between them and God, because God's holy and man is sinful, uh, there's a separation, and all men stand under God's wrath, all men stand under God's condemnation. Wages of sin is death. I don't believe in, in sin. Okay, the wages of sin is death. Just wake up. Like I said this morning, you can't even see the reality of the blind man standing in front of you, and people are just deaf to the uh, idea that, that death is coming, but not for me. And you go to a funeral after another funeral after another funeral and go, yeah, it's going to happen to that guy, but not for me. It's the insanity of sin. The hardness of man's heart that doesn't realize the situation of what's going on around him. Right? All men to need to be told of the reality of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of mankind, the fact that they're separated from God, that they're under God's condemnation and wrath. But all men also be, need to be told that there's hope. There's provision. That there's a way to escape death. There's a way to escape the... God's wrath towards man's sin, and it's found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That if a man would repent and believe, then God in his mercy would reach out to that man and save that man from their sin, and they could experience newness of life, and they could experience peace for the first time in their entire life, peace with God, objective and subjective peace. That's the gospel. That's the content of the gospel. And that call goes out to all men again universally, to all men. And it goes out to men through the external preaching of the Word of God. And again, through the external preaching of the Word of God, uh, um, God invites all men alike to repent and trust in Christ. But there's a distinction. Some people respond to the offer of the gospel and others refuse it. Well, why is that? Well, look over in Acts, in the New Testament, the book of Acts. Acts uh, chapter 17, starting in verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, here are the responses. Some began to sneer, but some or others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Uh, both of those, in essence, are the same response, right? We, we, some began to sneer, right, which is a refusal of the offer, and some said, we'll hear, we'll, we'll get to this tomorrow. But that's presumption because nobody knows if they have tomorrow. So both of those answers are the same thing. It's a refusal of the offer. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we shall hear you again, we shall hear you again concerning this, verse 33. So Paul left, right? Paul went out from their midst, verse 34, but some men joined with him in belief. Proclamation of the gospel, people rejected it, people received it. What's the difference? Because both, both groups were presented with the same information. With the same call to repentance from sin and faith in the resurrected Christ. Why did some sneer? Why did some believe? It's because the gospel became effectual in the lives of those who believed. Both groups hear the same message. Some are saved by it and others reject it. And those who have believed, believe because they have been quickened. They have been regenerated. They have been given spiritual life and they're now able to respond to the gospel. How is that? Well, one writer says this, by the sovereign electing grace and mercy of God in which he enables unwilling and incapable hearts to be both willing and capable to repent and believe upon Christ. That's a great statement. By the sovereign electing grace and mercy of God in which God enables unwilling and incapable hearts to be both willing and capable to repent and to believe upon Christ. Matthew 22 verse 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Another resource says this, the effectual call is the act of divine power mediated through the word of God by which the Holy Spirit illumines the dark in mind, softens, softens the stubborn will, and inclines the contrary affection towards the living God and thus leading under the regen, leading under regenerate to, uh, thus leading the regenerate to trust in Christ in a saving relationship. Right? Again, it's the work of God. So there's a a general, a genuine, general, universal call of the gospel that goes out to all men to repent and believe. And and it's made effectual by those who do believe. There there is a summons of of the king of the universe, and he makes this divine summons, and it goes out to the entire world, and and amongst some it has such power that it brings actually the saving result intended by the king. Again, another writer says, therefore, the effectual calling must be understood in terms of God's sovereignty over all things and the uh, genital total depravity of humanity. So again, it's a work of God under the sovereignty of God and a realization of the total depravity of mankind. So God issues an effectual call, and that effectual call answers some questions that are kind of behind the scenes. Questions such as, and there's four of them I've got listed down here, but if there are none who seek after God, as it says in Romans 3.11, if there's none who seeks for God... And therefore, since humanity is totally depraved, how can any person respond to God's offer of salvation uh, through the faith in Jesus Christ? Well, it's because of the effectual call of God. 
Second question, if nobody seeks for God and if we're in a constant willful state of rebellion against God, how can the human, uh, how uh, will humanity begin to seek God in salvation? Well, nothing by what they do. It's only by what God does, right? It's the effectual call of God. We spend our entire life running away from God. So the next question, if we're persistent in running away from God, how will we ever run towards him? Again, it's because of the, uh, if you're trying to take the test, it's the answer to the same. So I'll just save you, right? It's the effectual call of God. It's what God does. It's monergistic work. If we're persistent in running away from God, how will we return to him? Again, by the effectual call of God. The fourth question, how does a dead person respond to something? It's the same answer on your test sheet. Just write the same answer down. You'll be good. When I would do that as a professor, people would get crazy with me. I'm like, look, it's my class. I can do whatever I want. If it's A, it's always A. I don't care. What do you care? You know, just read the question and answer it. It's the effectual call of God. Right? Just put that on your test sheet. Right? All of these questions are answered by understanding God's effectual call. Now, again, look over at Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You're familiar with it, Romans 8, 28. We know that God, pay attention to the words now, we know that God causes all things to work to good for everybody. Is that what it says? We know that God, well, I thought God was a God of love, and he loved everybody the same, without exception, without condition. Well, don't try this, but try that in your relationship with your wife. I love my wife. I love my wife who's a woman, and I just love all women the same, without exception or without condition. That's not going to work very well for you men. Right? That's a ridiculous statement. You understand that? We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Here it is to those who love God. To those who are, here's the word, called according to his purpose, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, that means to mark out beforehand, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. That's redemption from eternity past into time to eternity future, if you're looking for a verse there it is right there, right? It's from calling from eternity past into the present, justified, and justified is glorified. It's already a done deal, right, in the eternal future. Now, another way to think about this call is to understand just who we are. Who are we? We are Cornerstone Bible Church, okay? We, we don't, the, the building's not the church. We are the church, the people, right? The people are the church, Ecclesia, right? We are the, the called out ones, the called forth ones, just like, the, just like it says there in that verse, right? The, the church is the called out ones, the called forth groups, a, a people that God himself has sovereignly called out of all the entire world. He has separated them out unto himself as a result of or as the, the, the cause of his effectual call. Again, all who are called according to his purpose. First, uh, Peter 2 and 9, I'm just going to shotgun you a bunch of these or machine gun them to you is probably a better way uh first uh, peter 2 and 9 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for god's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light uh, the answer is going to be the same in all these okay first corinthians uh 1 9 god is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son jesus christ our lord acts 2 and 39 for the promise uh, is for you and your children and all who are far off, 
as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his glorious kingdom, uh, or his kingdom of glory. 1 Peter 5 and 10, you have suffered, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you uh, to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 2 Peter 1 and 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Right? So the people who have been effectually called are those who have been spiritually resurrected. Those who are effectually called have been given new life. They've been given a new birth. They're born again. They're born from above, quickened, regenerated. They are no longer who they used to be. Therefore, they belong to Christ. Therefore, they belong to Christ and they're called saints. They've come into the realm of peace. They've come into the realm of freedom and hope and holiness. Uh, they're in pa- they're, they are patient when they endure suffering. And, and they've been called into the realm of eternal life. So there's a, a universal call that goes out, and then there's an effectual call. Now, those who refuse the universal call, those who refuse to come, those who refuse to uh, answer the universal call of God bear their own guilt. They bear their own guilt. Why? Because they themselves are unwilling to come. They themselves are unwilling to repent and believe the gospel. John 3 and 17, For God did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but the world should be saved through him. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Those who refuse the offer to come bear their own guilt. John 5 and 40, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Those who refuse the universal call, they themselves are unwilling to be saved. So again, therefore, we see the necessity of the effectual call, God's effectual call. Because without God's effectual call, without God's work, then no one's ever going to come to Christ. No one's ever going to become a Christian. Again, in our own text, Romans 8 and 5, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Uh, for the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. First Corinthians 2 and 14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to, foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So that's where we were when we were born in this world. We were born in the flesh. Unwilling and unable to understand God. Spiritually dead and without Christ. Uh, aliens, strangers, without hope, without hope, blind to the to the glory of the person of Christ, blinded by Satan himself, blinded by our own sin. Therefore, we are perishing. But when life was given, when the call of the gospel became effectual, immediately, instantaneously, supernaturally, miraculously, by God's grace and God's great mercy, we became alive, right? And we believed by what God did. Uh, again, we got to get it. We got to hold on to the truth. That, that regeneration is by divine initiative. It's totally God's doing, not man's doing. Titus 3 and 5 again. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Okay, let's back up for a second. Let's have another Greek lesson. What do you think that means in the Greek? That he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness. It means, class, that he has not saved us on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness. But, according to his mercy. How are you saved? By the mercy of God. 
by the grace of God, by the washing and regeneration, by renewing of the Holy Spirit. Which leads to this statement that I'm sure some of you have heard before, but maybe to some ears it may be shocking. Here it is. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. We are called to believe upon Christ. And apart from the regenerating grace of God, we can't. We can't exercise faith. We can't believe because no man has the ability or the power to raise himself from the dead spiritually. Therefore, no man can cooperate with God by the exercise of his faith before God in his mercy quickens that man spiritually, uh, before God makes that person alive. Regeneration precedes faith. It's God in his mercy who acts upon us first. And then with the regenerating grace of God, we who are spiritually dead come to life, we believe. Because biblically, both repentance and belief in salvation are both gifts of God. You, you can look it up on your own, Acts 11, 18, Acts 16, 4. Again, our passage in Ezekiel 36, 26. Repentance and belief and salvation are also gifts of God. So again, just as no man chooses to be born, no man most certainly chooses to be born again. Uh, to be born again is an act of God's sovereign grace, God's sovereign mercy. God in his kindness and his mercy quickens our dead spirit, and then we're able to believe and to respond to the truth. Again, unless one is born again, Nicodemus, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit. Again, this is Christ talking to Nicodemus, giving him a theology lesson, right? This is how somebody comes into the kingdom. John 6 and 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The the flesh profits nothing, right? We, We don't do any of this, right? He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That's what the Bible says over and over again. We were spiritually dead. And again, we have no power to raise ourselves. No man has the power to raise himself from the dead. Again, it's an act of sovereign grace. And again, we in no way cooperated with our coming to life on a spiritual level. R.C. Sproul uh, offers this. He says, The reason we do not cooperate with regenerating grace before it acts upon us and in us is because we cannot. We cannot because we're spiritually dead. We can no more assist the Holy Spirit in quickening of our souls to spiritual life than Lazarus could help Jesus raise him from the dead. Probably true that the majority of professing Christians, he says, in the world today believe that the order of our salvation is this faith precedes regeneration. For we are constantly exhorted to choose to be born again, but telling a man to choose rebirth is like exhorting a corpse to choose a resurrection. The exhortation falls on deaf ears. That's a tremendous statement. And again, another affirmation of the fact that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. Now, I don't know if you want to look at it or I can just read it to you, but over in the book of Ephesians, we actually know specifically the time, if you will, the, the time we, when regeneration happens. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. And I, I know you want to look at it. I mean, I, I want to look at it, even though I know it's in my notes. I want to look at it. Oh, there it is, Ephesians 2, 5. When, when did this happen? When, when did regeneration occur? Ephesians 2, 5. When you were dead... Right? Or when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you've been saved. Regeneration precedes faith. When did regeneration occur? Well, when you were dead. Right? When you were spiritually dead. And the spiritually dead take no initiative. Right? 
initiative, again, belongs to God and God alone because he's merciful, because he's gracious. Again, unless a man is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When we were dead in our transgressions, he, God, made us alive together with Christ. Speaks of grace. Speaks of God's total unmerited favor. Uh, sola gratia, right? Grace alone. Our spiritual regeneration, our salvation, stands in the gracious work and gift of God by himself. God alone. Verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We need to think biblically. Have I ever said that here? We need to think biblically on all matters. Not culturally, not Christian culturally. We need to think biblically. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Paul teaches that even the faith through which we are saved, is a faith that comes to us as a gift of God's grace. R.C. Sproul, again, he says, Our faith is something we exercise by ourselves and in ourselves, but it is not of ourselves. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. It is not an achievement. With the graciousness of the gift of faith as the fruit of regeneration, All boasting is excluded forever, save in the boasting of the exceeding riches of God's mercy. All man-centered views of salvation are excluded if we retain the sola and sola gratia. Therefore, we ought never to grieve the Holy Spirit by taking credit to ourselves that belongs exclusively to him. Those in whom the Holy Spirit makes alive most certainly come to life. They see the kingdom, they embrace the kingdom, they enter into the kingdom. That's a great statement. Right? We, we're all debtors to grace. And again, God alone gets the glory for our salvation. God alone gets the glory for us coming alive spiritually. God alone gets the glory for our spiritual regeneration. So again, biblical regeneration is where God takes the man by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he has an effect upon that man. He makes that person into something new, someone new, from the natural to the supernatural, from dead to alive. Again, he makes him a new creation, uh, one who is born again, born from above. Now, one of the major reasons that I think that people, many people fail to understand biblical regeneration, one, it's not taught on often, but one, I think another reason, one of the reasons that people don't understand biblical regeneration is most people, again, in the shallow modern church, ha- have a, a woeful understanding of grace. Of grace. What, what's Grace. I, I saw the acronym, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. I got that. But maybe it needs to be a little bit deeper than that, right? John, John MacArthur has a great comment in a book called Faith Works on what most people wrongly, I'll give you that ahead of time, most people wrongly believe grace to be. He says this, most people see grace as nothing more than a supernatural get-out-of-jail-free ticket. And no strings attached, open-ended package of amnesty, Uh, beneficence, uh, indulgence, forbearance, charity, leniency, immunity, approval, tolerance, and self-awarded privilege, a divorce from any moral demands. The modern church, people in the modern church, most people see grace as, again, get out of jail, free card, do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. Jesus has paid all your sin, so just live your life any way you want to, right? Now, the problem with most people in the modern church's understanding of grace is it's not biblical. Most people, again, see grace as some kind of dormant, abstract quality, but that's wrong. 
Here's a great little phrase, and I might have come from MacArthur. I don't know where I saw it, but here it is. Grace works, right? Grace works. Grace is active. Grace is dynamic. A great grace is alive. Turn over to Titus, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He's just he's saying all classes of men. He's not teaching universalism. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, now grace is not a one-time experience in the Christian life. The realm of grace is where the entire Christian life is lived. Grace is the realm where every believer now lives their life. Romans 5.2, it says we stand in grace. Right? So that's the realm we live in. We stand in grace. The Christian life is empowered by grace. Hebrews 13, 9. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Uh, 2 Peter 3 and 18. We're called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace or graciousness is an attribute of God himself. His nature. Uh, it's his nature to bestow grace. So Psalm 112, verse 4. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. Joel 2 and 13, the Lord your God, he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, or relenting of evil. First uh, Peter 5.10, he is the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. So because God is gracious in nature, he takes the initiative. And, and he regenerates the dead spirit. He, he gives the gift of faith so that the sinner might believe the gospel, and he grants repentance so the sinner might flee from their sin and to flee to Christ for salvation. Therefore, God and God alone gets the glory for salvation, for mankind's salvation. Why? Because he's a gracious God. He's a gracious God, and sending his dear son into this world for the salvation of mankind is the extreme expression of his grace. Again, Paul says here, Titus 2 and 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God has appeared in the world by God sending his son into the world, right? And the grace of God has appeared by God sending his son in the world, and then likewise sending the Holy Spirit who comes and quickens our dead spirit. So now that the Holy Spirit comes and actually lives within us, he dwells within us. So here's a good definition of grace. The writer says, the free and benevolent influence of a holy God operating sovereignly in the lives of undeserving sinners. That's a good definition of grace. The free and benevolent influence of a holy God operating sovereignly in the life of undeserving sinners. He goes on, but grace is not liberal clemency or passive indulgence that simply tolerates and coexists with sin. Divine grace doesn't guarantee heaven in the afterlife while merely overlooking the evils of this life. Authentic grace is the undeserved favor of God towards sinners, delivering them from the power 
as well as the penalty of sin. He says grace is dynamic, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And that comes out of Colossians, or Titus 2 that we just read, right? It's a great definition of grace. Authentic grace is undeserved favor towards the sinner, delivering them from the power as well as the penalty of sin. And grace is dynamic. Again, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Again, grace is active. It's dynamic. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, that's a far cry, that statement right there. It's a far cry from those who teach that a person can be regenerate, that a person can be born again, yet continue to live a life of habitual sin and walk in habitual sin. It's a far cry from that. It's a far cry from those who come and teach that a spirit, a person can actually be saved, regenerate, and show no signs of spiritual life because they accepted Jesus. I don't understand what's wrong with Johnny. He accepted Jesus when he was two. I know he just burned down the village, robbed the bank, and you know took everybody off, off and plundered. But boy, I'm so thankful he's saved because he accepted Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. It's popular theology, bad theology. It's popular theology. It's not a biblical theology. The Apostle Paul says here again, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all classes of men. Again, the grace of God has appeared in time through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to save men from the damnation, from the corruption of sin, sin that damns, sin that separates, sin that crushes human life. Again, here is God's redemptive grace on display. And there are four things, and I'm only going to mention them briefly here in this portion of Scripture. Again, grace, number one, brings salvation from the penalty of sin. Again, verse 11. That's what it says. Grace brings salvation from the penalty of sin. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Again, not universal salvation, not salvation to every single man, but to all classes. Jews, Gentiles. Christ himself bore our sin in his body. He stood in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin. Therefore, grace has been brought to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, salvation is from the penalty of sin. The second thing grace brings salvation from is the power of sin. Verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. As soon as we're saved, we're indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we're under the instruction of God through the Holy Spirit and through his word. Now, the natural man can't understand God. He can't understand God. He can't understand the things of God. But we who are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us, we can. All right, the Holy Spirit now indwells us, and he sanctifies us, so that he separates us from sin, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And he actually shows us how to live righteously, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live <coughs> sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, now, again, those who don't properly understand grace think that sanctification is primarily the work of the believer. Therefore, it's more or less optional. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that sanctification begins at conversion. And, and the process of sanctification begins when God in his mercy regenerates a man's soul and now allows him to believe. And then God comes and gives man a new heart and then a new spirit. It's a spirit of, of obedience. And regeneration marks the beginning of sanctification and glorification. When we're dead and we step into to glory, that marks the end of it. The zenith of sanctification is when we see Christ face to face. 
face to face when we're instantly conformed to his image. Until that day, however, we're in the process. We're being sanctified, being conformed gradually to the image of Christ. Again, those who come along and say that you can claim Christ and, and live no different than once you were before you made that claim, they're still living in the unbroken bondage to sin, and they have no true claim upon Christ, no true knowledge of Christ. That's why Paul warned us back in Romans 6, you might remember. Romans six eleven. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you may be, obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, chapter 6, verse 14, Romans. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. You're under grace. So again, those who come and teach that a Christian can be one who's regenerate, who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and can still live a life of rebellion and outward sin against God, don't understand grace. Or the passage we're going through here in Titus. The Bible says again, the Holy Spirit, verse 12, instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Deny means to purposely, consciously, as an act of the will, reject, to deny these things. Right? That's not the power we have to do in Christ. Perfectly, no, but most certainly as the bent of our life, the pattern of our life, we are to turn away from ungodliness. We're to turn away from worldly desires. We are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We are to live sensibly means under the control, or, or to live under control. We are, we are to, to live under control sensibly in, in the issues of life. Righteously means a fully, faithfully obeying the word of God, doing that right thing. Godly is pretty self-evident, right? It just means in close fellowship with God. We're doing things God's way. So regeneration comes, and, and, and God sanctifies us. God saves us from the power of sin. Third thing that salvation does, that God's grace and salvation, it, it frees us from or brings salvation from the presence of sin. From the presence of sin. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Man, one day we're going to be perfect. One day we're going to stand in his presence. One day, one day we're going to be done with these bodies of sin. And we're going to be done with all the corruption that we're a part of in this world when we're glorified, when we look forward to that reality, right? Amen? Now, every time we take the, the Lord's Supper, we talk about the Lord returning, right? Do this until I come back. We look forward to the blessed hope, the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, his return. Grace brings salvation from the presence of sin. And number four, grace brings salvation from the possession of from the possession of sin, verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now the natural man is in total bondage to sin. He's a slave of sin, is what it says in Romans 6 and 16. But the Christian has been united with Christ, therefore he's in Christ, one with Christ. Christ is in him. Romans 6, 5. If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We are under the authority of someone else. And our gracious God, our gracious Lord, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, that he might set us free from the captivity of sin. That's what it means to be redeemed, to be bought back from that slave market of sin, the captivity of sin, to be redeemed from every lawless deed, from all fleshly lusts. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. 
Again, our great God and Savior Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, I don't know how you can read that passage to come away with any other conclusion or any other idea about regeneration other than the fact that regeneration leads to life, a changed life, eternal life, a new life in time, here and now, in this present age. Uh, Regeneration is going to lead ultimately to glorification. It's going to lead to a progressive walk to sanctification in time. But it leads to a transformed life here in the present. And, And grace, as we've sung forever, is utterly amazing. It's amazing. It's active. It's dynamic. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I, now I see. Now I get it. It's not just that I'm saved. It's not my entire life. You know, John Newton didn't get saved and be, remain a slave trader. God saved him and changed his life and transformed his life and he became a pastor. The entire city of London shut down at his death. This man who was an absolute wretch, a reprobate, became most beloved, not because of what he's done, but what God had done in him and changed and transformed his life. Grace is active, dynamic. Grace is a gift. And listen, grace what? Grace works. Grace works. It's active, dynamic. Grace reigns through righteousness. Romans 5.21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, the people who don't understand the doctrine of regeneration don't understand grace. Back in our text that we started, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you in Romans 8. <clears throat> You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The Spirit is alive because of the righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who's come in and actively, dynamically changed our life by grace. Verse 10 is the doctrine of regeneration. All right? Let's pray our Father and our God. We're thankful for that. Wonderful, wonderful truth <clears throat> that you save us, that you change us, you transform us, and you uh, get all the glory. We are humbled at your word and humbled at these most wonderful, rich truths that you have left for us to be encouraged by and to encourage each one with of the active work of you, our God, in our lives, transforming and changing us. We praise you, we adore you, and we love you for your wonderful truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.